Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all of the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. While I've got your attention, I'm really excited to announce that Covered Press is now offering its journalist story management software for free for the first 500 journalists who sign up. As a journalist, I know how difficult it can be keeping track of all my stories, invoices, and communications with editors. Covered Press streamlines the whole journalism process and keeps you organized. Sign up at CoveredPress.com today to get one of the 500 free spots available. And now, enjoy our podcast. Boy, nobody else is looking at this in, in media or journalism, except for the occasional, you know, oddball story about an old, old person, you know, skydiving or something like that. As newsrooms consider how they can improve their coverage of different communities, one that is often overlooked that has many interesting and important stories to cover is the graying population. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Paul Clayman is the National Coordinator for the Journalist Network on Generations and Senior Advisor for the Journalists in Aging Fellows Program. He also edits the Generations Beat Online News. Paul has been covering the aging beat for decades, and he's joining me today to talk about it. So, Paul, welcome to the It's All Journalism podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me, Michael. I'm an old man, so I'm really happy to, to actually get somebody on here who's not starting out their career and find out about this really kind of inter interesting beat that you've got. But usually what I like to do is, is to learn a little bit about the guests as we get going. So tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get involved in journalism? How did you end up on the Generations Beat? You know, I think like so many people, there is a, a high school journalism teacher and the high school paper that really was the first thing in my very young life. Mrs. Young, Mrs. Bernadine Young was the first one to tell me I had something going for me as a storyteller in journalism class as a, a junior. I am a graduate of Las Vegas High School, Las Vegas, Nevada. And I was the business manager and uh, sports writer for the Las Vegas High School Desert Breeze. <laughs> oh, wow. And amazed uh, myself and my parents when Mrs. Young gave me the scholarship award at graduation way back when, 1963. But she was so encouraging. It was the only thing that I think, you know, like a lot of reporters I know, this is all I can do. I would starve <laughs> to death if I couldn't find my way into journalism. But I would, you know, say probably I grew up in a family that was very devoted to involved engrossed with news and politics. I remember the tensions when I was around 12 years old, which is kind of an age, you know, when you're really becoming aware, politically aware, and beginning in kind of that early teens, preteen area, and gathering around in 1957, watching the Little Rock High School you know, blocking of uh, the black students coming into the stu school by the governor and the you know, declarations on all this and what the National Guard was going to do. And just, you know, what I saw was my family showing strong interest and expressing strong opinions about, you know, the rights of those kids to get educated. 
you know, things of that kind, I think family interest. You know, we also had a newspaper slapping down on, on the doorstep, my brother delivering. I never got into that, but just having a daily newspaper. And I think that's a problem today with, you know, younger people getting interested and involved, you know, with all the podcasts, excuse me, but, but at all the, you know, online and the, and the phone news. Sure, but, you know, real news, having that around in your environment regularly in those days, something you could pick up and look at a page. Those are some of the, you know, real motivating factors, you know, for me, I think, in my background. So you had this early exposure to news. Let's jump ahead to, you know, how you ended up on the Generations Beat. First of all, how what would you describe as the generation? Because you know, I think a lot of people would say, "Oh, you cover senior citizens," but I would imagine that's not necessarily the best way to refer to your audience and your beat. Well, you're right, and I've expanded it over the years. The issue is that concerns of aging have really been short shrifted in American media for decades, and just the youth focus, which has really been driven by media marketing well before the internet. And I did a lot of uh, writing about this when I started Generations Beat Online. And years ago, we originally called it Age Beat Online, and I expanded it to Generations Beat Online. And the reason is issues in aging tended to be you know, pushed aside and they still do in some cases. Only a couple of years ago, I had a young reporter we were talking to about applying for our fellowship on aging, who came back and said she had just pitched an, an article on a story on aging to her editor. And the editor is, uh, you know, an older guy. Very often this is true from traditional, so-called traditional journalism, mainstream background. He said, why don't you come back with a story on millennials? Hmm. And we still hear that. I've been hearing that for years. So it is sort of a, an age top-down beat looking from the precipice of our years back on, on life. But from the very start, if you go back to one of the people I'd like to consider my one of my mentors in the world of aging, Maggie Kuhn, who is the founder of the Gray Panthers. Gray Panthers were always intergenerational and always talked about the interdependence of the generations. We're so age segregated in our, our society that the cross influence and cross help is often addressed in terms of ageist divisions across the age spectrum, no matter what you're looking at. So, you know, why I was attracted to the beat, I'm gonna jump over to that, you know, Mike. I'll tell you that 50 years ago, a uh, half century ago, I was, I'm a child of the 60s <laughs> and very much, and I was involved in the civil rights movement, and I was involved in the anti-war, anti-Vietnam War movement. And I came out here from, I'm from Minneapolis, was at the University of Minnesota School of Journalism, before it became the School of Journalism and Communications. Came out west to get away from those winters, 
So as a journalist, you know, coming out here, fighting the draft, you couldn't get a job in a newsroom and there weren't many jobs and there weren't nearly as many in media. But I was a draft resistor and was assigned to work at a, a wonderful nonprofit foundation called Glide Memorial Church and Foundation, which is an inner city church that was working with the poor people of the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. They were working with all kinds of nonprofits who were working with runaways. Of, it was the, you know, the summer of love period. And one of the things that I found was everyone was looking at the youth movements at that time. And of course, you know, the, the diggers and the free store and so on and so forth in the Haight-Ashbury. But up on the second floor, there was a group of seniors who were organizing politically and protesting against the governor at that time, a fellow named Ronald Reagan for his cutbacks on things like food stamps and SSI availability to seniors for lower income seniors. And eventually I was asked to write what became my one and only book, Senior Power, Growing Old Rebelliously, about the organizing of older Americans. That's what the, the group upstairs was called, the California Legislative Council for Older Americans, sort of preceded or the Grey Panthers or maybe were parallel to them. The Grey Panthers were developing in uh, Philadelphia and then some other cities. So I became fascinated at this and I thought, boy, nobody else is looking at this in, in media or journalism, except for the occasional, you know, oddball story about an old, old person, you know, skydiving or something like that. You still see those stories. So I was asked to delve into this and spent about two years in my spare time. Of course, you know, there wasn't such a thing as an advance, <laughs> you know, for a small, it was a small publisher that, that put the book out and asked me to do it. I worked for two years on the book starting in the mid 1972. It came out at the end of 74. And I thought, boy, you know, I have all a fabulous story that cuts across so many interests. And I found as so many other writers interested in aging over the years, including some pretty prominent, even best-selling writers that when you tried to pitch another book, uh, a book on aging with major publishers, you would hit a roadblock. They wouldn't even read it, some, read the manuscript or the pitch sometimes. Did you sort of encounter this resistance sort of since you wrote your book? I mean, is this something that's been sort of consistent? It's starting to change. I will say that only in the last few years. For instance, my wonderful late friend, Theodore Rozak, Ted Rozak, who became famous with the, the book, The Making of a Counterculture, huge, huge influential bestseller in 1969, I think it came out. He got interested in aging, as so many people do, through personal experience. Ted and his wife both had life-threatening diseases and survived over time. And what happens with, happened with him, and, and I did surveys when I started for the first years that I did the, 
after we created the, the network on generations and found that a lot of the reporters who get into this subject are actually seasoned middle-aged reporters with careers that are 20 years long in journalism. And what they discover is one of the parents or parent, you know, parent-in-law is elderly, has a problem, and they discover the huge gap in just finding affordable senior living, assisted living for middle-class you know, people. Most of those developments, uh, those programs are created for you know, upper income people and you can't really afford a lot of them. And they would get into just one roadblock after another with insurance, with limits of Medicare. But for years in journalism and the coverage of aging, you would see this refrain that, oh, old people are the most powerful lobby in Washington because they have AARP and they can take for themselves whatever they want. You would hear this constantly. It was a refrain being pushed by Wall Street and conservative uh, folks who didn't want to see more spending of any kind. That's beginning to change in the, in the media narration and be challenged. But you know what I would always say and still say is, why is it that the elderly do not have the single most important kind of health care that they need in their older years and, you know, is long-term continuing care. You know, let me, let me ask you this, because this is a podcast about journalists for journalists, mm. you know, how can people identify and tell these stories? What's the best approach for them? These are things that are relatable to so many other issues and concerns that are going on in, in the country right now. Well, it's a great question, Mike. The quickest answer is just look around you at the older people <laughs> that's the, around that's you. That's the easy but, answer for but, uh, that's all the easy answers. But the, you know, the fact is, as you're describing, aging is a very complex issue and it intersects which, with every other important issue we're talking about, climate change even. There are whole groups involved with elder activism, a lot of it intergenerational coming together around you know, global warming and climate change issues. But in terms of what reporters can do who are interested in this, certainly begin with a story, find a niche, get an, you know, your editor to uh, agree to let you do a story that you feel you can get a handle on with what's around you. But what's been so important in you know, this era now that we're in, of, the rise of nonprofit journalism and nonprofit foundations. You know, there are a number of excellent things like fellowship programs that will open you up to the resources and training and background on the issues in aging. And this is, you know, we're one of the main ones with our Journalists in Aging Fellows Program. You know, there are things like this. There's the Annenberg Health Journalism Fellowships at USC. I actually did that one in 2009. And it's not just on aging, but they're always including good proposals on issues in aging. There's the Rosalind Carter Fellowship on Mental Health at Columbia University in conjunction with Columbia Journalism School and their School of Social Work. 
the oddly named, I always felt, the Age Boom Academy every year, <laughs> the Age Boomers. But it's a real good fellowship program in uh, non-pandemic times. We'll fly, into New- fly you into New York, and now we're all, of course, virtual for this period anyhow. Really good exposure with workshops going out through several days about these issues. So a group of us actually started the what's now called the Journalist Network on Generations. A group of reporters got together at a big conference. We were spread all over the country. How do we stay in touch with these issues with each other and know what's going on? And very often, if you're taking this issue on in the newsroom, I think this become less, but it's, you still find yourself isolated. What we're able to do with Generations Beat online at gbonews.org is, is, you know, at least once a month, and I do this on my own, it's not sponsored, I'm the sponsor, <laughs> you know? but it's an ongoing source to see at least a selection I can find of good stories of what I think are, you know, important reports from different nonprofits and institutes and aging and, you know, studies on this and that that can expose you to who some of the experts are on a story you may be doing, whether it be on housing or the pandemic effects. And also, you know, I put in things like deadlines for fellowships, not just ours, but uh, different ones that I can find around the country for writers in, in different ways you know, uh, awards deadlines and who's won something, you know. So that's a, that's a monthly newsletter that you put out. Yeah. And, you know, it's free and people can just send me a note and say they want to be, would like to be on it and just send it to me uh, at my email, uh, pfclayman, p-f-k-l-e-y-m-a-n at gmail.com. Or just go, you know, take a look first at G-B-O- news g-b-o-n-e-w-s dot org and you can go to it and just look at a couple of issues and see if it interests you you know our podcast focuses a lot on digital media and digital news this idea that our industry is constantly changing you know we've seen a progression over the last decade or so of newsrooms you know laying people off or you know news outlets going out of out of business so we don't necessarily have the uh, structure that that used to be in old newsrooms where you had senior editors or senior reporters who'd, who'd been covering a beat for a while. And then related to that is the fact that, you know, many, many uh, journalists who have been, you know, covering a community for, you know, 20, 30 years or suddenly they find themselves out of work and, you know, wondering what they, what they need to do. You know, what are your thoughts about that? In some ways I've seen for the coverage of, orphan beats over the years. Yeah. The breakdown of the media, of traditional media, as you described it, with senior editors and hierarchies has been a good thing because, <laughs> you know, it's still hard for, you know, for freelancers just trying to, you know, get paid. You can find places, different places to place stories for little or, or nothing. And it gets out there in different ways. I actually just uh, an hour ago got news that a piece of mine 
on a political topic that I wrote is being picked up by LA Progressive and will be running tomorrow. And I'm glad to just have it out there. Of course, you know, I've got my social security and, you know, some pensions <laughs> there to take care of me. So I don't have to, you know, get paid for everything I do. And they have a really good distribution. So you'll find different things like that. The issue crosses over into this whole area of entrepreneurship. You know, there's been tremendous opportunity. So, the, you know, there's some new report that came out that surprisingly shows a huge number of the growth in entrepreneurship around the country has been among people starting new businesses that are actually going to be hiring folks. Well, a lot of those new businesses are, and some of them, you know, at least half of them, one person shops are you know, people in media who have gotten out of the old grind and you know, said, what do I really want to do? What do I want to write about and think about? So with all the nonprofit opportunities, the fellowship programs you can go into, there are more ways to stretch out. Unfortunately, are not at a point where they you know, can support a living for someone and people are patching together. One thing I, I wanted to, before we get too far, sure. you made a reference. I want to go back to something you were saying, because the attraction for me and for so many writers who get into the field of aging has been, it's one of the cross-cutting beats. It's healthcare, it's fraud, it's you know the hardcore issues that come with aging, it's age discrimination in the workplace, but it's also the opportunities for growth and wisdom and change, it's new perspectives on life. It really is the, the beat of the meaning of life. And you find that over time, you run into so much, you know, not every, not every individual who's old comes with wisdom as we've seen from Donald Trump <laughs> and, you know, on down. But I learned in coverage, the coverage of aging for so many years that there's kind of a community wisdom that comes about. There's a, a relaxation about life in most cases, a broader view. One of the things that you had referred to before that really gets in, into the, the wider issue for journalists is you know, you can find the local fraud or what have you, or the nursing home that's cheating and harming people and do gotcha journalism, which is in maybe, you know, the newspaper would be, the editors would be happy because it looked <laughs> like you'd win some award or something like that. You know, your local SBJ award or bigger. Yeah, uh, but, and, and but while so you were helping often, people. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but so often those stories ended at the exposure of the fraud. And those stories were important, but I think one of the really important developments that have come with this you know, new era is the whole range of organizations like you know, Solutions Journalism Network with you know, Tina Rosenberg and folks like that. When I met Tina a few years ago, we we're talking, I said, I've been saying this to reporters on aging for years. I didn't call it solutions journalism. You can find a story, an angle on aging everywhere. Housing. UCLA did a report just a couple of years ago on the rent burden increasing for older people. 
with the, you know, the escalating rents, especially in the urban areas, the tremendous expansion of the, an increase in the, in the out-of-pocket costs for healthcare. Health insurance does not cover everything, even Medicare. You know, there are many, many issues that you can find an angle on aging, but don't just beat someone up out there. Yeah, beat up the bad guys. Go after, definitely go after private equity, equity, you know, ownership of the nursing homes and assisted livings. But where are the solutions? We really have to also, as journalists, look at, you know, the immediate community issues around us, but also look at the systematic barriers to that and who and how and what are the proposals that could overcome them within our system. So you've given us a lot of things to think about. As somebody who's returned to community reporting later in life, you know, one of the things I noticed is that a lot of people who are active in the community, the ones who go to the community meetings and have the knowledge of the things that are, you know, maybe going wrong, tend to be older people. They tend to be people who maybe are retired and have the time to put their efforts in it, into that. And so quite often the sources that I end up talking to are older. You know, when you, when you get into situations like that, that gives you an opportunity to, you know, find other types of stories. You know, maybe you're writing a story this week about whatever this neighborhood problem is that's being addressed, but, you know, maybe that's a person who could uh, be a source for you, you know, a different type of story and a different type of topic that, that we've discussed. Paul, uh, you've given us a lot of things to think about and some good ideas, I think, for, for looking at stories in a different way that maybe address some of the, the prejudices that people have about older people and how we can tell their stories and, you know, bring them into part of our reporting. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>